three, two, blast off. Whoa. Hello, everybody. We are streaming. We are officially streaming. Oh, we're not? Oh, man. I was ready for my monologue. No, we are. We just started. It's not the show yet, but we're streaming. Oh, we are streaming. All right. So this is um, Black Hills coming at you on the week of Thanksgiving for those that live in the States and are listening. And you're probably doing nothing at work right now, are you? You're watching us <laughs> because you got nothing better to do. Yeah, that probably Christmas Christmas shopping. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll have one of those, two of those. You got to get ahead of the supply chain, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they're thinking about their, um, you know, eggnog they're going to make. And they're thinking about mm, how they're going to deal with their family in a few days. Hey, I, I think that was a, a wild John Strand that popped up there for a minute. Yeah, he came and, in for a second yeah. and, he, and he disappeared. I think he was throwing his hands up in disgust at probably his yeah. gear, going, "Why isn't my audio working?" I have fourteen. Can't adjust his compressor. Yeah, <laughs> I hate it when you have to adjust your compressor. Actually, that's what I. No, speaking of compressors, <laughs> by the way, this is totally unrelated to security news because that's what we do here. <laughs> but but on the weekend, I had to I had to get a dead chipmunk out of the compressor on, a, on the uh, HVAC system and oh, died God. between the blade. And Oof. I don't know how it managed to do this, and it was jammed <laughs> up the, the blade, so the fan wouldn't hey. spin. Can you guys hear me? Now yeah, we can. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right, awesome. Yeah, so my problem in life, just one of many, <laughs> is um, I have my audio interface, and I hate using Windows for like music and stuff. So I have to unplug it and plug it into my Mac because um, I have like the compressor and everything that Joff's talking about. So I got to like unplug and plug things back in. See, I was um, right. Yeah, he, he knows. <laughs> I know. No problems. Got to so, adjust your compressor. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing here. Pull the squirrels up. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Black Hills Information Security, talking about news. In this particular edition, we're going to be talking about ransomware to start the week off because we now put those stories right at the top. We'll be talking about the FBI, which has a flash alert on actively exploited fat pipe VPN. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder if there's somebody that we could call upon that maybe has found a zero day in fat pipes VPN before. All right. Then we're going to be talking about Iran and how they're undermining the U.S. presidential election because that's clearly not going to be a, a topic that's going to be fraught with all kinds of political overtones. We'll be talking about useful security practices, GoDaddy, wind turbines getting hacked, because <laughs> that's a good idea. And then we're going to get to the fun stuff. We're going to talk about, like, you know, how the Chinese and the Russians are now working together, because <clears throat> shit, what else did we need? And then we're going to be talking <laughs> about, oh, insurers are basically running for ransomware cover as losses mount. I am joined this week by our illustrious crew. We have Ryan, who just pretty much keeps quiet the whole time, like a ninja in the background, but you know he's about to do something absolutely awesome. We have Tim, who's been hanging out quite regularly this particular episode. And by the way, Tim, your beard looks spectacular today. Oh, it actually um, needs to be trimmed significantly. No, no, no. It looks oil. real nice and smooth. Oil. If I get in close, you can see I've got like, you know, that, that pre-puberty like scruff on the side. It's not good. Another man who has a great beard is Ben. Um, ben is joining us from the Chicagoland area. I think that's Hello. where he's at right now today. Um, also, Joff, who is going to talk about something, I Stuff. guess. I don't know. Like, who the hell invited Joff and why? I guess we'll find out later. And that's the um, same thing he said last week. I know, right? That's <laughs> how so I got started in this whole game. And then we have Ralph, who's pretty much my co-host and runs this stuff all the time and keeps it in between the lines. So, gentlemen, which story like is just like burning a hole in your psyche that you have to get into? You're like, we have to talk about this today because I have my favorites. <laughs> Actually, I kind of liked your uh, your favorites, the uh, the two ransomware stories, which uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, we try to avoid talking about ransomware. But this is like transformers starting ransomware game like they're like going to make into a ma master robot of just massive destruction. 
Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think we, we could start off with those two, right? So the first one, I guess, is the Chinese hackers teaming up with uh, the Russian ransomware gang, right? So it's just like two parties joining together to make the you know ultimate ransomware uh, team. And then um, the other one is the, uh, the fact that, uh, what do you call insurance it? Insurance companies. Yeah, no, well... Yeah, the insurance companies. No, and the <laughs> the other ransomware, which is uh, the uh, fact that they're buying zero days. Let's do one at a time. Yeah, let's set up the Chinese and let's set up the Russians first, and then we'll come back to the zero days. So yeah, the, the Chinese hackers teaming up with Rus Ra Russian ransomware gang to launch cybersecurity attacks. So this is terrifying for a couple of reasons. Let me explain a little bit of like you know hot nation state on nation state action. So a long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Barack Obama went to China and basically said, hey, y'all, stop hacking us. And China said, no problem. We're going to stop hacking you. I'm oversimplifying this, but what the hell? Let's just roll with it. And the amount of attacks that we saw directly coming from China actually dropped off fairly quickly. Instead, what China did is they basically started a process where they started using intermediary third-party hacking groups and ransomware groups to launch attacks and then basically were selling the access that they were getting back to the Chinese government. So everybody won. The United States was able to say, hey, look, China's not hacking us as much. The Chinese were able to say, hey, look, we aren't hacking them as much. And then China was still able to continue hacking a whole bunch of crap here in the United States as a whole. So that was really kind of this unholy alliance between China and working with kind of the criminal underground and then basically breaking into the United States. Russia, seeing that, they're like, that's our playbook. Um, a lot of Russian hacking going even further back. In the Cold War era, there was a whole bunch of computer scientists that Russia was basically building up because they wanted to be a technological superpower. Trained all of these people in deep computer skills. And then basically Russia as a large scale organization at the end of the Cold War went away. So these people no longer had employers and money coming to them. So they went to organized crime. And there the line between the Russian government and organized crime continued to dissolve more and more all the time where one is really truly the same. So you had these two organizations, you had Russia and China, that basically started working with criminal elements in Asia and in Russia in different sorts of ways, which is equally terrifying on both sides. But now they're like, hey, you're the peanut butter to my chocolate. Do you hate America? I hate America too. We should get together and hang out. They're hanging out. And historically, Russia and China tend not to get along real well because there's some border disputes and some history there. But this is a really crappy development as a whole. And I know I gave you way more background on this entire thing. Ryan's talking about we should start the Cyber Olympics at an international. <laughs> um, but this is this is terrifying because if they have a common enemy, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's no way that this is good for us as as a whole. So, reading this article and kind of going through it, what do you guys' take on this? Other than like, holy crap, this is just bad. Uh, cyber insurance is going up. <laughs> Cyber insurance is flat out quitting and walking away. <laughs> you know, let's talk about that. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So. I think we need to give them a reason to dislike each other. See, now, Joff, we've talked about this. Like, if the United States intel operations are working properly, they would foster that level of discontent between each other. But I, I don't know. I think that this one's probably going to stick. At the bottom, the last paragraph says, some security experts believe this could simply be an attempt on the part of Russian hackers to hide the fact that their RAASS -A -A operations did not go according to plan with ever-growing numbers of ransomware and cyber attacks. It's always a good idea to keep a watchful eye on all the threat actors. But seriously, a coordinated nation-state level team-up between these two, you know, they have completely different, like, techniques and procedures and tools. This is bad, as near as I can tell. But is it any worse than what it is, is what a lot of people would ask? And I honestly believe that the answer is yes. This is worse. If these two are actually collaborating and working together, this is far worse than just one group or another doing their thing. I think it'll, it'll burn itself out eventually because very, very seldom do people actually get along. <laughs> I, I think we'll, we'll, see, we'll see this burn through, but 
in in the in the interim uh, term, yeah, I think it's really bad. It's a, a bad turn for us. Um, it's it's like starting the Cold War again, but worse. Yeah, but I, I think you know, going back to the Cold War analogy, you know, Russia was always Russia in the Cold War. China was always China. You're right; they didn't really get together all that much and work together. And their goals and objectives are very different. If you look at China, they're all about stealing intellectual property. They're trying to steal nation state secrets. They're trying to steal technology, patents, all of that stuff. And Russia's whole goal in everything is to sow as much chaos as they possibly can in the political system to basically hurt the United States and other Western countries and their ability to be a solidified bloc from an economic perspective in Europe and dealing with NATO and things like that. Those two objectives don't necessarily line up with each other. So I guess, wh where do you guys think that their objectives would actually line up with each other? As I go over here and sign dark, I mean, I got to sign documents here. I signed the wrong line and she's got now got like a little arrow and everything. Um, I don't even know what I'm signing here, Erica. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Blackboard. <laughs> Hey, you all work for Erica now. <laughs> you did before, anyway. Oh, well, all right. uh, I don't think there? anything's changed. Uh, meanwhile, somewhere deep in the Black Hills, John signs away <laughs> all of his employees to his wife. Okay. Live on YouTube. Perfect. Uh, it happened. You witnessed it. It really happened. <laughs> what were we talking about before John went to sign something? I mean, I think the, the straightest line between groups like that at this point just seems like financial motivation, too. Like, if there's anything that this disparate group of you know state sponsored, state affiliated, whatever attackers could probably agree on. It's it's trying to make money while doing it, especially if a lot of it does fall into kind of like that more criminal aspect and you know less politically targeted kind of attacks. Just everyone gets paid. Yeah, I'm hoping it's the less politically because if it's just an issue of money, great. You know I, that that's the type of hacking I think that, like you said, more of a straight line. They want your IP. They want your sweet dollars. Stop them from getting it. When you start getting into politics and chaos and nation state level things, I think that, that the options that are available to an attacker are wide open at that point. And it's much more difficult to defend in that scenario. That's a good point. Um, do we want to talk about Vinny and the FBI hack? Sure. People can bring that one up. I, I, I'm actually I, I'm happy to say that I'm friends with Vinny. So, all right. So, Vinny had this, has this threat intelligent company. Um, it was called Nightline, and they rebranded to something else. And Vinny was doing a lot of work tracking groups on the dark web, all right? And he basically came out with a bunch of claims and was tracking a bunch of different groups. And as much as I, as much as I like Vinny, he may have gotten up a little bit too far ahead on a surfboard with some of the cl claims that he was going at. And there was a number there was a number of people in the industry and in the uh, kind of the hacking community that didn't shine too well to what Vinny was actually doing. And he was basically talking about, you know, who are the people that were running Dark Overlord? And uh, that got him into some level of trouble. Um, there were some attacks against his own system and there was some data that was released. Uh, There's some debate as far as like the efficacy of the data that Night Lion had and was actually released publicly. So Vinny's a strange dude. He's wicked sharp and he's been doing a lot of good things and like law enforcement and stuff like that. But like I said, it's one of those things where like you have these beefs in the computer underground and Vinny definitely went and poked wasp's nest and he got kind of like stung a lot for actually doing that. And uh, basically the whole FBI attack, they were basically using it to kind of troll him and what he had actually done as well. Um, I don't know if there's much to say about this story other than, you know, be careful dancing or be careful going toe to toe with dragons because you're crunchy and you taste good with ketchup. And this gets <laughs> into kind of the whole thing about, you know, threat intelligence feeds. And I, I guess for like a larger conversation, for a lot of these different groups, for you to get involved in the groups and the, in the dark web, Many times you have to share information with these groups that is potentially on the very verge of being legal, if not illegal, to gain entry into these groups, number one. And then how much value is there in actually, quote unquote, penetrating these groups in the dark web? And does that actually provide any, like, does that provide, does that move the needle in security? 
um, because it makes for great stories. Like if you get a chance to just sit with Vinny, have a beer, and just listen to some of his stories, they're enrapturing. They're, they're the, these great stories about getting involved in these different groups. But one of the questions that I always have, as cool as those stories are, is how much value does this crap actually provide the industry as a, at, at, at a, at like a base level, or does it not? I can speak to just a little of that, right? So Humit, right, I think provides a lot of value, right? Like that intelligence, but whether it provides value to our industry, whether they're actually finding that information out, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, Humit definitely is valuable, right? I mean, we do that with a lot of things that are not tech, right? And, and that's really what this joining these gangs or whatever, you want to say gangs, like these groups, underground groups or whatever, you know, that's, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get human intelligence, right? Like from these other people. But the, the big difference is that you don't always know that's the same person you're talking to, right? So you don't have that, like that physical tie. And that's, I think where, um, you know, the pieces of the puzzle can kind of go astray, right? No, I got a question for you, Ralph, because you do a lot more with the quote unquote dark web, and we should probably clarify what the dark web is a little bit. But there's this there's this belief that hacking groups have sort of like, you know, I always think of like the cantina on um, on Tatooine, right? Like you walk in and, uh, you know, <laughs> hackers are all sitting around tables smoking and, you know, you have to cut off one's arm with a lightsaber to assert your dominance and not be it. It's like. Do these things, do these groups actually exist like that? Because I would think absolutely some would, but do they all? Because a lot of these dark web groups are like, well, we've penetrated so we can tell if your company's been hacked. So from the human perspective, what do you think about that? Is, it, is, it, is there value in actually penetrating the dark web? Or is it better just to sit back and wait for data to come up for sale, purchase the data, and then notify people, which is what most threat and tell companies do? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question. And I guess it really depends, right? Like, um, where you're getting your information from what like groups you may or may not be part of or, you know, underground. Um, it's not even just like forums, too. I mean, they could just literally be like telegram chats. You know, there's a lot of places now where this kind of communication is happening. Uh, it's actively happening. And it's, you know, kind of guarded, right? Like, that's how they're, that's how they're doing their operation, whatever it may be. And if you can get there just to listen, but, you know, you got to realize that in, in, in some sense, right, um, the fact of telling is also an indicator that someone's there. So, um, you know, a lot of times it's you, you have to be able to uh, relay. The only way to stay in there is to relay that information in a way that doesn't give up that you're there. Right. Or that you're part yeah. of that group. So and I'm and sure they- a lot of these organizations assume that there could be some kind of person in there, depending on how big it is. Right. Or that somebody could have already been turned with the FBI. Yeah, I did like Ben Webb had a quote just now where he said, I find it hilarious that someone said, you know what, I can send email as the FBI. I'm just going to use this to troll somebody like (laughs) it's, you know, they could have done so many other things like, you know, send Bitcoin to help the United States government combat whatever. They could have done things. But instead, they're like, let's screw with Vinny on this because, you know, you know, there's a lot of people that have opinions one way or the other about Vinny. But I will tell you, he definitely pissed off some people. And for that, Vinny, mend you. <laughs> well, let's, let's move on to the next story. I want to talk about insurance running from ransomware as their losses mount. So this is an interesting story because I, 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 this particular story actually came to me not through like general security practitioners, like pen testers, but it actually came from a local group in South Dakota, believe it or not. Um, a security group that's set up here that's like all kinds of small businesses and hospitals and companies that are dealing with these attacks. And they've noticed that ransomware and insurance is starting to get weird. So one, you're seeing a lot of insurance companies that are coming up with boards of companies that they authorize you to do incident response ransomware activities with. So instead of you going out and just hiring Mandiant all the time, which is what a lot of companies do, they have a like an assigned company from the insurance company will actually be assigned to you. You will pay their money. You will pay their salaries for that contract. And um, that's one thing that they're trying to do to control their losses. And part of the reason why they're doing that is because they, they have some control over what that IR firm is doing. And that IR firm is not your advocate necessarily in that scenario. 
they they may very well be looking for reasons to give the insurance company to not pay you, like you're not doing due diligence. Then you're seeing insurance companies, there are some insurance companies that are just flat out walking away from cyber liability insurance completely. There's like, F it, our actuary tables are messed up, we're not doing anything. And then there's a large number of insurers that are basically trying to get companies out there to pay 50% of the ransom. So the insurance company isn't eating the entire cost. They're trying to split the cost 50-50 and spreading that. Um, and I like the quote that Ryan has up now. It's as profitable as cocaine. So you've got cocaine, I guess, is right up there. So with this one, it, we've been talking about this for a while. This is kind of the inevitability. I mean, we've been kind of predicting insurance companies screaming from this entire industry for quite a while, right? So this isn't that much of a surprise other than it's very similar to the Russian and Chinese thing. It's like, this is bad, right? This is yet another bad thing. Um, I, that's out there. I think it's good if insurance gets out of this game, right? Because if we put the onus on the companies, then that hopefully will drive the security, right? Um, because now it's just not like, oh, well, we'd already planned for this, right? We had this already taken care of with insurance. So that'll make them think, oh, well, no, we planned for this by definitely increasing our security posture and not just buying some cyber insurance because it won't be there to buy. Well, and I, I think you're right. I think that there was a large number of companies even up until fairly recently within the last 24 months, that was their ransomware policy, right? They didn't try to say, okay, what's our backups? What's our recovery? How are we air gapping things that need to be air gapped that are super sensitive in previous data? Um, how are we putting in these controls, detective controls? Are we actually, instead they're just like, we'll just buy insurance and if we get hacked, we'll take out an insurance claim. And I still hear that from some companies out there. And whenever I was talking with insurance companies at my last IONS form, that I went to that was in Boston, there was like four or five insurance companies that were there. And they were flat out saying that, you know, they're trying to weed out the customers that their policy is the insurance company will actually pay for it. Um, so we got Pascal dropped a comment. Pascal said, I feel insurance really allowed people to take a backseat on attacks such as ransomware. They just let cyber insurance pay off the ransom, then they don't have any way to go, go get a backup. And that's true. And, you know, that's kind of the way a lot of companies were looking at it. But I don't know. What, what does everybody else think? Do you think insurance companies should just kind of step away from this a little while? Or do you think that they're just going to continue raising premiums until they're actually profitable? It feels really ambiguous to try and like come up with a, a value of restitution or insurance too. You know, it's not like a physical object, like a car that has been, you know, stolen and you need a new one. Like you, you could come up with like equations for like downtime and what that costs the company based on how much money they could have theoretically made in that time period or like what the reputational cost could have been to an organization in the public. But I feel like trying to come up with a claim for being like, oh, our systems were down for five days. We deserve $200 million. I, it's, I don't know, it just feels very ambiguous. So it kind of makes sense that as an insurance company liable for paying that money back, you wouldn't want any part of it. Well, and I think that some of the insurance policies that we're seeing, they're trying to limit that exposure by basically saying, we will pay for the ransom, but as far as all the other things that you need to do, as far as you know, you know, paying for downtime, lost in, in income potential, restoration, they're not paying for that as well there. So yeah, I, I, I think the other big thing here too is that when you pay the ransom, this kind of leads into our next article, which is how rich these ransomware gangs are becoming and now they can buy zero days to uh commit these attacks right so was this the first one i sent you that i said this is bad i think this is the first one i sent you yeah this this is definitely bad so there's an article from uh zdnet and uh so obviously ransomware is continuing to go and uh when insurance companies or companies end up paying these ransoms to get their data back or whatever it may be as part of the deal, they get more money. And instead of just buying Lamborghinis, they also possibly buy zero days or other kinds of exploits to continue the attack, right? It's this machine that they're building. And when big money gets involved, well, there's always pretty much a zero day for sale. It's just how much. And, um, you know, ransomware gangs are starting to do that, be willing to purchase these kind of exploits to conduct the next attack. And that could make them even more deadly in the next one, right? So the you know, for the company that doesn't know or actually does have a decent security posture with them getting exposed, right? And then having to do the cleanup. So it just makes it even harder to, um, you know, protect yourself. Well, and this is something I think that's always been happening in the criminal underground. 
I think that it's getting to the point where this article is talking about, it's getting to the point where it's actually an established marketplace for these different zero days that are out there. And this is this would be one of those areas, like I genuine, genuinely hate cyber threat intelligence as it relates to trying to buy signatures and hashes and IP addresses. But seriously, if you're a vendor, like you're a Microsoft or a Cisco or a Juniper or a Palo Alto or any of these different companies that are fairly large, you damn well better have threat intelligence on those marketplaces on those particular vulnerabilities, and you better be bidding on those vulnerabilities to try to get some access to them as well. But, you know, this is a business, right? And you're going to have people that are looking at their return on investment, and they're going to say, okay, well, we used to be able just to exploit things at will because they're running Symantec or Mac- McAfee standard signature-based detection, and uh, that was easy peasy. We could do that all day long. Now companies are starting to get better in their security posture, now we're literally going to need zero days to actually start breaking into those organizations. With that in mind, I guess kind of one of the open questions that I like to put to the group is, does this mean that if we're doing pen testing, that we should be using zero days to emulate those attacks? Or are there better, Ben starts laughing, <laughs> or are there better, more effective ways that we can, that we can do our testing without having to have a zero day in an, in an organization to try to gain access? <laughs> I'm going to pick on Ben. Ben, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think if you want to use a zero day in a pen test, like is, is that something that you spent time outside of that, those billable hours to develop and you're burning it for this one client because you really like them and you really want to show them what's up? Or is it, is it more of a value add in a pen test to really like demonstrate other areas of improvements and risk gap <laughs> analysis, and defense in depth, and like a million other things that they can actually do instead of I don't, know. I don't think there's much value add. That's the value <laughs> yeah. add, right? That's yeah, exactly like, it. It's like bringing a nuke to a knife fight and then being like, wow, <laughs> exactly. dude, I can't believe they didn't see it coming, right? Gotcha. Like, you well, decimated gotcha. the village, you know? You start, the, start the stopwatch, right? Tick, 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 tick. Pen test over. Drop my nuke. I, so, <laughs> see, real, there's, real there's talk, also, real talk. I've never talk. been on an engagement. I've never been on an engagement where I was like, man, if I only had a zero day, that would have been so much better or like well, I, it would have changed you know all of that right i mean if was, it's if there was only somebody on this podcast that had done that huh? you, know, you <laughs> must be doing it wrong for an ios zero click exploit I, I think you're probably looking well into six six figures if not higher yeah okay um, let's, yeah. let's, let's just say zero. let's say two million dollars Okay. okay, I yep. want to take this. I want to take this conversation I like this I like slightly, where this is going. slightly different. But imagine if a ransomware gang buys into a iOS zero-click exploit for two million dollars. What could they gain from that? Because I don't know what the numbers are on on iPhones and every other things like that that's out there in front of the number of devices that are de- deployed. But you've got to imagine they could easily make their $2 million and then some back holding all of these devices ransom. And that's oh. one of the things that concerns me, not just on the, from a business perspective, but getting down to the consumer level of they could literally nickel and dime every device. On the <laughs> like, like, yeah, we paid $2 million, million dollars for, for, for this iPhone exploit and we managed to, you know, uh, ransomware, 10 million devices, just like that. And you got to figure a percentage I'm going to pay. What, you know, if it's not, if it's, you know, hundreds of dollars, whatever, yeah, just hopefully they'll just cut their losses or something like that. But if it's like 25 bucks over 10 million devices, like you got to, that's, that's, that's a, that's a perspective that I look oh. at. It's like, if I'm going to invest in zero days, I want to, for the purpose of ransomware, I want to hit as many targets as possible. I still so I like, like the strategic. I still like the strategic of like, I can get into X, Y, and Z organizations strategically. So look but at it I'm like here this. To make money. So Tim, here's another way of looking at it. Okay, you're absolutely right, and I think that thought exercise is very logical, right? Like, let's say you're paying two million dollars for a zero click. How much can you get that? But you also got to think of like Cyber Icarus. If you think of Icarus, he flew too close to the sun. Wax melted and he came down. And it was also a badass Led Zeppelin t-shirt. But the point of all of that is like if you're looking at like Windows exploits, you look at iOS exploits, those are less likely the ones that ransomware is going to go after because if that hits, 
then that's in the news, right? That's going to be on front page news of, you know, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, like, you know, all of these different news sites are going to be right there, front and center. And then you're going to have every single law enforcement person on the face of the planet coming after you. If you're going to purchase these zero days, it's very similar to what the NSA is very interested in, which is they're very interested in a lot of Soho router exploits. So if you can get a hold of exploits for a particular manufacturer and they're the main manufacturer in a certain country, then you can use those exploits in that specific area. You find a Fortinet exploit, that's going to be something that shows up in security news feeds. It's not going to be front page news everywhere. So it has this capability of existing for a much longer time because the organizations are not necessarily going to hear about it and patch it. So whenever they're talking about this stuff, a lot of it is much more like under the surface. But I think that thought exercise works. If you can say the most expensive one is $2 million, three, $5 million. And like you said, if there's 10 million devices that they can hit at five bucks a pop, they're making a huge amount of money. I guarantee you that cyber criminals are making the exact same calculations right now that return on investment from VPNs to firewalls to networking devices that aren't like marquee names, but right below the surface. Yeah, Alex made the point. But if if they hit that many devices, who will be reading the front and center news anyway? <laughs> <laughs> they will be able to. Well, so I mean, John, John's John's absolutely right. That's like the equivalent of like dropping like ten nukes all over America, and everyone would be like, "Oh, uh, well, well, we just have to accept this. We just must accept this, right?" I mean, like everyone would be so irate about it, and like you know, you're right. Yes, they would they would possibly make some money, but they might not live to see it, right? Um, yeah. you know, and who knows, who knows? I'm just saying like, we don't know what that kind of like event would look like, but to John's point, like you're going to be like publicly enemy number one. And if there's one thing I know, if the U S government wants to get you, they can get, you, right? get you. Well, and sometimes it will we'll get you sometimes it's yeah. even worse than that. Like the get rich or die trying group, you know, Gonzalez, you know, they went after TJ Maxx and a bunch of like JC Penney and a bunch of groups, like a whole bunch of those people were arrested. One of them was transiting through Turkey and was arrested in Turkey. And, uh, you know, they contacted the United States for extradition. They're like, hey, do you want him? And the United States government is like, you got him, Turkey? Turkey's like, yeah. They're like, we're good. Um, so you have to be careful. Like whenever you hit that level, um, you're, really under, you're really under a lot of scrutiny. Now, going back to like the zero day thing, you know, we talk about it in the context of pen testing. What the hell does it prove if a pen testing firm uses a zero day to get into your organization? That proves that you're vulnerable to zero days. Thank you. I knew that. You know, that's not proving anything. I think all the crap that happens after that is far more important for detective. And I think you can implant yourself on servers in the DMZ, on hosts on the inside doing assumed compromise assessment and emulation. I think that that's far more valuable and I, like really economically feasible for companies than like a company that's like, hey, yeah, we're leap. We got zero days. Oh, <laughs> I've done a couple, I've done a couple engagements like that where we had made a zero day unrelated to the engagement. We use it on the engagement and yes, it does kind of work out like that. It's just, it's not, it's weird. It's weird. It it is. And like, and, and in fact, actually after that one that we did use, but ended up being a big zero day, you know, later on in Microsoft word and uh, you know, the original researcher who found it, uh, you know, he got like a pony for it and all this other stuff. But the thing is, when you're writing that report, it, it makes it weird. And so we just didn't do that anymore. And it probably is something like if I had one in my hands, it's fun to be like, yes, okay, I can just do this and get this zero click and blah, blah, blah. But it really, you know, we could also just ask for access or something like we don't necessarily need to to do that. Well, and like, like let's say that you have a zero day and a VPN or a firewall and that's what you're then what happens is a lot of your customers focus on that vulnerability and that quote unquote cyber kill chain. And they might be ignoring other possible vectors. Like you talked about zero days in Word, zero days in your email filters. I mean, the one that we're talking about to all of our customers is the RDP vulnerability. Is it a zero day? No. Um, it's basically RDP files are allowed through most email filters, and we can totally go back to one click compromise where you double click the RDP file and it takes over a system. That's not a vulnerability in software. It's actually a configuration vulnerability. And those tend to have a lot longer legs. So, you know, at BHIS, like one of the things that we would rather focus on rather than a zero day is a tactic or a technique that's going to exist for a long time, like password spraying, two-factor authentication bypass, OAuth level attacks, 
those are things that, you know, once a vendor has found a zero day, they patch it, it's over, and all of that research is burnt. But if you're actually coming out with new tactics and procedures that gets you like a really nice weaponized capability that is going to last much longer. So transitioning into zero days, uh, do we have the fat pipe VPN thing? That story was up there, I think. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it made it. So let me set this up. So there's a fat pipe VPN zero day bug. And I, I wanted, since we're talking zero days and companies and things like that, um, I thought I would bring in an expert on FatPipe VPN, who has actually found a zero day in FatPipe VPN, and that person is Joff uh, from from BHIF. Yeah, Joff, you want to talk about you want to talk about like just getting started. What exactly was like kind of like the timeline with FatPipe? Because I think that it's very indicative. I don't know how they reacted to this story, but kind of the narrative of how we tried to notify them multiple times and they didn't listen or react to us. Is yeah. very indicative. And yeah. what finally got their attention? So go ahead, Joff. Talk about I, it. I don't I don't even remember what finally got their attention, but anyway. We did a no, webcast on it. Oh, that's right. A public <laughs> webcast. <laughs> no, no, there was that. I, that was I the stunt hacking webcast. Go ahead. The, the stunt hacking. Oh God. See, it's been that many years ago now, John. So, you know, first of all, really, really kind of funny. I saw this story on Hacker News this morning. I'm like, holy crap, deja vu. Because <laughs> um, you thought it was actually that vulnerability. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I, um, I, was, uh, I, I was doing an engagement for a customer. You know, this was probably six years ago. Um, and, no, uh, no, no, no. I think it was only like three. Because I remember uh, I did the webcast at the office. All right. It was a long time ago. We're old. It, it, okay, was, a <laughs> it was a while ago. It was a while ago. We'll go with that. But anyway, um, yeah, the customer said, hey, hey, why don't you look over here? I was like, okay, I'll look over there. And uh, he goes, I'm not sure whether I like this fat pipe thing. And I'm like, oh, all right. So I started looking at it. And um, yeah, sure enough, I found a vulnerability in the way that they were uh, rekeying their encryption cipher. Yeah, it, it was turns out yes. Wasn't it an electronic codebook that they were yeah, using? Yeah, was was codebook, but it turns out if you rekey your cipher with data inside the quote unquote encrypted block, it's really not a wise idea. They also reuse right? the same key in every develop in every deployment. Remember that? Well, they, they they kicked it off with a known key and then they rekeyed it subsequent to each block. And of course, once you it, it was kind of like a, a, a blockchaining vulnerability. Once you found the the once you found what they kicked it off with, it was pretty trivial to work out. Uh, you know yeah. that that they were rekeying each block, and um, and so they they weren't. It was it was you know in, encryption gone wrong. So okay, so we did this and uh, turned back to my customer, who's who's kind of a good friend of ours, and I and I said, uh, hey man, um, so we found something. Turns out we can decrypt the traffic, and he's like, I knew it. I didn't trust that darn thing. Uh, <laughs> and then and then uh, you know uh. We tried to reach out to the vendor uh, once, twice, uh, like three times, three times. A few months go by, uh, and finally, John, John, finally, John's like, "Fuck it, let's do a webcast." <laughs> so, well, uh, and, and the know. point of the webcast, just so everyone knows, the point of the webcast, there was a huge debate in the industry about full disclosure, responsible disclosure, because um, that that was something that we were fighting over. Apparently that problem hasn't been solved. And Weird. one of the things that we wanted to talk about in that webcast was how you have all these people in the industry that are like, well, you should do responsible coordinated disclosure with a vendor. And we wanted to highlight this as vendors many times will either A, completely ignore you, B, send you to their attorneys, C, Oracle is horrible at this. Yeah, I was about to say Oracle. Oracle. <laughs> the engagement that Kelsey was on where she had like six zero days in like some of their ERP software packages. And she went back and forth like nine, 10 times with their engineers before they even agreed to try to fix it. We wanted to kind of talk about this as a narrative from a pen testing firm's perspective, just what an incredible waste of time it is to try to coordinate with these companies. But then Joff did the webcast, and then what happened, Joff? Well, <laughs> they, I don't think they were very happy. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember, John. i got to be well, honest. I, I, I'm the one that got the call from the CEO of the yeah, company. Yeah, that's right. You got the phone call, yeah. And uh, so he somehow got my phone number. I think it's because my phone number is at the end of the webcast. And um, <laughs> might be, maybe. 
Um, so he called me up and was just livid. And he was actually talking like attorneys and all kinds of different things at this point. And we basically said, look, this is how this is going to go. If you choose to sue us, then that's great marketing for my firm. One, first and foremost, thank you. We greatly appreciate that because we're going to document the hell out of it. And have you ever heard of the Streisand effect? And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, if you decide to come after us, then every security researcher on the planet is going to start looking at your product too. So we can work together, we can be friends, or we can go the way where I get free marketing. So he decided to work with us, and then they finally decided to take care of the vulnerability. But like that, that narrative of that thing, that's the way this shit goes almost all the time. Um, I can't think of any situation where we found a vulnerability in a product and the company was like, righto, thank you very much, chaps. Uh, Google was pretty cool. Whenever, we, whenever Mike and Bo came up with the calendar injection, injection vulnerability, other than the fact that they locked down the entire BHIS domain, which was scary. Uh, yeah, some crazy hours, things happened there. That, yeah. was, that was pretty crazy. But whenever they finally got it, I think, I think Mike finally got a payout from Google that was like, it, was, it came out, I can't remember what the exact number was, but it was like 3117, like elite, um, that was the dollar amount, <laughs> which was kind of cool. nice. Um, but but even, even that with Google's engineers, like we went through the vulnerability for the calendar injection thing, and that particular vulnerability for background is we could send in a single ICS file, and if somebody opened it, and then somebody else like, like touched it. That was one of the people that set up the meeting. It would basically blow up the calendars of the entire company with thousands of meetings and just shut that entire company down. And I remember for a while, like Google, Google themselves were like, no, 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 this is a feature. This is the way it's supposed to be. It was, it was bad. But like I said, even working with a company that's supposed to be cutting edge like Google is an incredible pain in the ass. So what we tend to do now at BHIS we find vulnerabilities in web apps and APIs or anything that we're working on. We literally give it to the customer. We're like, you work with the vendor to get this crap fixed. And yeah, right. uh, so that, that, that was one of our, the other lesson we learned is, um, <laughs> and I hate to even say this, but I'm going to, the other lesson we learned in stunt hacking uh, webcasts is that redaction really is. Redaction is important. <laughs> Thankfully, our customer at that point had brought down those IP addresses. Yeah. Um, before that happened, and he's he's he was cool with it. We have a good relationship with them. But yeah, we we just about hard. we we just about pooped ourselves after that. We're like, oh crap! Yeah. <laughs> he gave me a little bit of crap about it, but we were we were cool. So yeah. you know, this goes back to like the overall conversation of zero days. I think there's far too many pen testers that enter this industry, and they're like, man, I've got to be able to code zero days. You know, you got to be able to code zero days. No, you don't. You don't. Like, and, and we have, like, people that are on this, we've done it. And almost universally, it's a pain in the ass process. And it doesn't actually prove anything to the company that you're pen testing. Other than in Joff's situation, the customer was like, burn this product to the ground. I want it to die. Well, right. <laughs> there are some very exceptional, unusual situations. But the fact of the matter is, if you really want to go after zero days, they're exhaustive, hard work and you're probably not going to be able to fit it into the constraints of any engagement. You're doing it at night for yourself, really. You're not, you're not doing it necessarily for uh, you know, th that particular engagement because you're not, you're not going to have time. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Uh, there's zero time to do a zero day on it. Time is irrelevant when you're doing a zero day because you have actually changed the gravitational constant of the universe. Right? Well, and, and, and in that situation, like Ralph, I think set it up great. He's like, if you want to do it after hours because you absolutely love a customer, then go for it. And that was exactly what happened on that engagement. So yeah, I, I, I think I take exception you know, if companies want to hire a pen testing firm that's like, we use zero days, get on with yourself. That's awesome. If you got money for that um, and you're willing to spend that type of dough, God damn, that's cool. Go for it. For the 99.999% of the organizations that are out there that are really trying to secure their systems, it is stupid to hire a company to do that if your password policy is eight characters. It is If you're not patching your crap, it is stupid to do that if you're not logging Sysmon on your endpoints. Like, there's so many other things that you could and should be doing 
that, you know, basically the doing like the cool stuff. And I don't know, I think that a lot of people forget, Joff, like when we started BHIS, because you were there very close to the beginning, yeah. a ton of our customers were constantly pushing us to pull rabbits out of our hats all the time. They're like, you know, oh, I'm going to set up flags in my environment. And if you don't get the flags, I'm not paying you. You know, I did that because <laughs> almost always whenever that happens, like you get the flag, you're like, hey, this flag was on your system and you've got a lot of porn, mister, in your documents. folder." <laughs> and then they just refuse to pay that invoice because they're embarrassed. Um, oh, no. John, I'm really scared of that row hammer attack, man. That row yeah, hammer attack. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's definitely the row hammer. That's the problem. Oh, <laughs> so, all right. Um, we had the securing. Let's do the last one kind of with that. Securing your digital life, the finale, debunking worthless security practices. This was an interesting article. There were so many more. There were so many more that they should have done here. But I think it's, it's very, very like high level. It's not to people like us, right? Like I think it's designed for people that are not necessarily in the security industry that believe certain things. Um, so like some of the ones that are there, I think I can get behind are like, thou shall change your password every 30 days, right? That's basically from the, uh, the NIST Green Book series. And I use that example all the time. Like, <laughs> NIST Green Book. Um, we limit our passwords to 12 characters so you don't forget them. <laughs> love that one, right? And then the other one was myth, don't write your passwords down. I actually, have you, like, okay, so I've seen the post-it note thing under the keyboard um, back yes, in, like, 2004. I've, I've exploited this, that. by the way, John. Yeah. I have. I, I mean, because you do, like, a physical, and that's the first thing I do, and you walk into these desks, and it's, like, hoarder's nest, and there's just yeah. post-its all over the place, passwords for this, passwords for that. But um, uh, but I, I know where you're going with this, and you are right, John. Is that you know it's offline, so like someone has to break in, to, you know, be in that you know yeah. personal space to grab that, right? Uh, uh, no, no, so, Ralph. No, oh, I've got a cool oh, exception oh, to that. Josh, be careful of high resolution security cameras in your employees. Oh, oh yeah, right. <laughs> Here's, exactly. I I have I have literally been on an engagement where we got onto the cameras that were Camera. in the freaking oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had pan, yeah. tilt, and zoom on them. <laughs> and and they, had a big, they had a big whiteboard. That they would basically yes. have a rotating password of the day. And that was the password they would get every user that would come in. And there was a logical reason for it. The reason why they had the password that they were handing out of the day to employees that forgot their password is they could check that password hash and see if anybody continued to use that password hash. They had a logical reason so for it. Yeah, and the policy was you clean desk policy, right? So that that was yeah. like what we write them up. Like you shouldn't be writing this stuff down. Like, uh, yes, it is bad to write it down in any case because like I feel like we're always going to find some edge case where we're like, yeah, and then we did this, and you know, I broke in, got to the camera, yeah. and you had it written on your keyboard, and I read it from there. It was amazing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. There's always so the an next edge one, two-factor authentication is too scary for me. Um, I'm oh, now yeah. getting very, very, very jaded. Um, where if I'm talking to a company and they're like, well, we, we don't like the two-factor authentication, our employees won't accept it. I'm just like blunt now. I'm like, you're going to be hacked and it's going to hurt the whole time yeah. real bad. And I, I don't know if that's the right thing or the wrong thing, but I, I, don't, I just don't want to do much work with a company that honestly has a policy like this and is okay with it. You know, We do have security teams that are like, you need to come in and break our company open like a nut. And then we need to get 2FA and we need to get these things in place. But it's, it's rarer and rarer that we're getting pushback on 2FA. Um, you know most what? companies are doing that right Audience, now. just so you know, John doesn't hold back. <laughs> Not anymore. There's <laughs> <laughs> sales calls where they're like, don't bring John out. No, no. Yeah. Don't scare the customers no. away. <laughs> yeah, he's the his two factor rant. He's got, oh, it's, good. it's done. It's done. It's done, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, we don't done. have 2FA. You're going Probably. down. <laughs> Or, or like IR engagements. Joff, there was the one IR engagement. We were like, we don't know how we got hacked. I'm like, do you have 2FA? No, that's how you got hacked. <laughs> wow. IR how do you got know? Hacked. How do you know? You don't even have to pay me. Like, that's how they got in, more than likely. Um, that's, that's how that happened. Um, oh, but God. It, yeah, it's getting better. It's getting a lot better. And many, it, it, what's weird is many of the organizations that are like that, it's odd, but their employees, are actually pushing for 2FA. 
because they're like, I turned this on on my Google account. How come we don't have this at work? And that's something <laughs> like that. Often. Yeah, actually, that is really freaking cool, though. You got to think about that. That, I, that I, blame Teen Vogue. I blame Teen Vogue because Teen Vogue had an article that was like, everybody should enable 2FA. And if we can't at least meet the Teen Vogue standard for computer security, <laughs> we're doing something wrong. If <laughs> that's the level, we got to at least meet that. Got to meet Teen Vogue. Of now, course, we know, what, we know what feeds the myth. We know what feeds the myth, and, and, and that is once you enable 2FA and you're doing it over SMS, right? The oh only thing that stands, that, that stands you between you and the precipice is like a 16-year-old working at the local cellular phone store. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, my God. Now that's, Joff, that's something that we need to do for a pen test. Like, have somebody get a job at a local Verizon wireless store so they can, like, <laughs> reset. Anything for the customer. Just to do a swim, SIM swap. Just to do SIM cloning. It's like, what are the phone numbers you need? Just start popping that crap. We ought to go to work wearing a SIM swapping is cool t-shirt. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> so Mr. Strand, why do you think that you can be part of the AT&T mobile team? I like to swap SIMs. I mean, I'm really into that. I think that's, that's my life goal. This guy seems legit. I think, I think this guy is someone we need here. Oh, you know, the other thing, too, is that you don't even need the physical uh, sims anymore, right? E-sims have been a thing now for like two or three years. You can actually do the whole thing with an e-sim. So, you know, you can switch or switch them right there. It's wild. You do not need a sim anymore. Now, Praxmark's basically said an affiliate store, not a corporate location, which I think is wise <laughs> because... You, you want to piss off the small affiliate. You don't want to piss off Verizon corporate um, because they'd like wake up and be like, let's just sue them into oblivion. It's like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. No, you got to go after the low hanging fruit. It's got to be an affiliate. Maybe, maybe BHIS needs to become an affiliate reseller of AT&T and Verizon. Just so we can do Genius. SIM swap. Perfect. Genius. Just so we can do SIM cloning. Oh, I heard it here live right here this week. It's just, <laughs> it's just one of the services that we offer. And what, what is it? Bo was calling black teaming. You know, extortion is part of what we do. Hold on. Let me shake my crystal eight ball here and let's say, uh, no way. That's not going to happen. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Confuse the hell out of AT&T and Verizon. I'm like, Girls they don't sell say, anything, but they do SIM swaps all the time. I don't know. It's strange. It, it may last for a week. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it just needs to last for a couple hours. That's all, you know, that's it. But that, but that, oh God. Okay. Yeah. That's all kinds of fun. All things. kinds of weirdness just happened. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very quickly. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. We're at the, we're at the hour. Thank you so much, Tim, Ben, Joff, Ralph for joining and Ryan, of course, um, keeping us, you know, where we need to go. And with that, everyone have a great Thanksgiving and I will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Actually, when I'm using the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm even too loud here, but when I'm using the large diaphragm condenser, it does not go Ooh. through the compressor gate. It goes it straight so in. It sounds so when you say that. Large diaphragm. <laughs> large diaphragm compressor. Yeah, yeah anyway.